Amen. Please be seated. Let me invite the children to be dismissed. And, uh, and as they go, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do pray that you would be exalted. You are worthy of all of our praise, all of honor. Lord, you are worthy of it all. You're worthy of our lives. And so, as we have already prayed, we pray again. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Instruct us now for the sake of your glory and our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, We're going to be continuing uh, our series on freedom from looking at Psalm chapter 90. If you haven't already, let me invite you to turn there. Psalm 90. Uh, Writing to a friend in June of 1795, the great Christian political abolitionist, Wilberforce wrote to his friend, wherein he described his so-called great change. This is the moment in which he's reflecting now when he came to faith in Christ. And he said, this is what he wrote, he says, It is scarce too strong to say that I seem myself to have awakened about nine or ten years ago from a dream. To have recovered, as it were, the use of my reason after a delirium. Till then, emulation and a desire for distinction were my governing motives. And ardent after the applause of my fellow creatures, I quite forgot that I was an accountable being. That I was hereafter to appear at the bar of God. Well, This morning, as I mentioned, we're continuing our series on freedom. And today we're going to be considering this notion of time and freedom. That is to say, how Christians, how can Christians operate as free men and women inside the stubborn confines of time? How do we do that? How do we do that? And here we learn from our brother, one of the great devices of the evil one that wars against our freedom. We learn that his devices is to keep our wits asleep to the reality of our accountability to God. And as we sleep, He is to give us dreams of worldly acclaim or distinction. And so there we have it, asleep to God, awake to the world. And that, friends, is slavery. That is slavery. And this is exactly what we see in C.S. Lewis's fictional stories that he calls the Screwtape Letters, wherein he has this conversation between one demon to another demon as to how they can take Christians down. And he writes this about one chap that is considering eternal things. And as he's instructing the younger demon, this is what Lewis has him to say. He says, before I knew where I was, this guy thinking about eternal things, before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years of work beginning to totter. The demon says of this man that is considering the things of God, he said, if I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at that part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was about time to have some lunch. The enemy, which would be the Spirit of God, the enemy presumably made a counter-suggestion that this was more important than lunch, and so I added that he could consider the subject after lunch. And once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper, a number 73 bus going past, 
And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got him into an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he is shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. You see the point, the demon says. Humans find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. Keep pressing home the ordinariness of things. Unquote. In other words, keep them distracted from eternality and get them to focus on the desires of present reality. So when Wilberforce came to Christ, he understood himself to have awoken from that dream. And if we were all being honest, I think all of us would agree that we spend a lot of our time feeling the same way. We are often asleep to the reality of God and awake to the presence of our immediate desires for lunch. And so instead, we feel more like slaves to time instead of feeling free in time. So how is it we who have been set free in Christ, how is it we live inside of that freedom, inside of time, in a way that reflects the reality that we have been set free to eternity? Or how do we who have been set free to eternity live freely in time and not feel enslaved to it? Or maybe to say it most simply, how can we who are free more often say, that was time well spent? Well, that's what we'll consider today as we continue this series through freedom. We considered a couple weeks ago, how the Oxford Dictionary defines freedom, which I think is oftentimes the way in which the world understands freedom. And the Oxford Dictionary defines freedom as the power or right to act, think, or speak as one wants. And we've considered over these few weeks how that is in fact a definition of slavery. Because we were not made for ourselves. We were made for God. And so freedom is not doing whatever we want since we were not made for ourselves, but is doing what the God of love would have us to do by His grace and for His glory. And we've defined freedom as being freed from the guilt of our sin and freed to love as God loves. And this is why Jesus came to purchase our freedom, to be able to have that guilt free, to then love as God loves. And so now we're going to consider this, uh, how to deal with this in time. And we're going to do so, as I mentioned, from Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long 
Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Three points this morning. The first we see is that we must recall that God is eternal. We must recall, if we're going to be free in time, we must recall that God is eternal. Now, the Psalms that we just read from, they are written long before the arrival of Christ. They are anticipating His arrival to atone for sins. And this Psalm in particular is written written by Moses, that great lawgiver and the leader of the Israelites that led them out of Egypt. We often think of the Psalms as being written by David, but they're written by numerous people, one of which in this one is Moses. And the occasion for this psalm seems to be the point, uh, at some point, of when Israel is wandering in the wilderness for 40 years due to their disobedience to the Lord. And I gather that by, uh, I gather that by taking a look, of, uh, look at things like we read in verses 7 to 8, wherein they're rehearsing uh, their, their sin, as well as the request to return in verse 13, and a plea plea for works to be done in verse 16. All of these things would have been noticeable realities during the period of the wandering. But as I read that passage, did you notice the notion of time that seemed to be the main ingredient of the meal that Moses is cooking for us in this passage? The notion of time. Did you see that? Throughout this psalm, Moses compares the eternality of God to the temporary nature of mankind. That then leads him to his request in verse 12. And that, by the way, will be our three points this morning. And so for us to understand the point of this psalm and for us to understand the freedom that we have in our time, with our time, we have to first regularly recall that God is eternal. God is eternal. This is exactly how Moses proceeds in this passage. We've got that beautiful consideration there in verse 1 that the Lord has been their dwelling place or refuge in all generations. Not just the one he's writing in. All generations. Hinting us towards eternality. He is before the mountains. We see in verse 2, He formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. In verse 4, we get that uh, passage that Peter would pick up on in his epistle in the New Testament. We read that for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Or a watch in the night. And then in verse 13, we have that covenant name of God. Yahweh. Lord, which means I am. I always have been. Existed outside of time. And so now you ask maybe the question, well, Nathan, why is it important if we are going to live in our freedom in time? How is it we rehearsing the eternality of God is going to have us to enjoy time? Well, the answer to that question, friends, is because time defines us. Or shall we say in some ways it enslaves us. Having been created, we are bound by time, but not God. He is the only one that never has been bound by time. He is truly free in time. God is the only one that has existed before creation, and He set creation into existence. And so when we think about time, it is literally impossible for us to understand what it would like to not be bound by it. It is difficult to wrap our minds around this, right? This is why one of the uh, reasons that theologians call this one of the incommunicable attributes of God. 
which is a big word of saying it, it's difficult for us for this to be communicated to us as human beings. We just don't know what it's like to be uh, operating outside of time. But the point here is, is that if we are going to enjoy our freedom in time, we have to begin with the one that isn't bound by it. The one that set it into existence, the one that is of eternity, of eternity. A major difference, by the way, between us and Jehovah Witnesses and the, uh, church, the Mormon church, which would understand that Jesus was bound by time. And so when we look upon God in his eternality, we remember that eternality, then we can then be oriented and liberated to enjoy our freedom here in time. Freedom in time demands that we consider him who operates above time. There's that great story of Jesus in John chapter 8, just right after the passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, where Jesus is having a bit of a debate with the Jews and the Pharisees. And he says at one point, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And the Jews and the Pharisees say, you're not yet 50. There's no way that Abraham would have known you. And Jesus responded by saying to him, before Abraham was, I am. Employing the holy name of God. Employing the eternality of himself. And we know that's exactly what he was saying, because if you look in the very next passage, the Jews and the Pharisees pick up stones to throw at him because they understand him to have just uttered blasphemy. But here's the thing about that story. The Jews didn't recognize Jesus because they were so oriented by their own understanding their own limitations, their own time. And the second that Jesus pulled their eyes up to his eternality, they couldn't see it. They were enslaved to now, so they couldn't see the face of the eternal God right in front of them. That led them to wanting to kill Jesus. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, to kill Jesus or the ideas and the people of Jesus is to believe lies. And believing lies is slavery because it leads to death. Believing the truth we saw from John 8 sets us free. And the truth is that God's operation above time orients the freedom of those of us who are in time. And so unless you regularly rehearse and are aware of the eternality of God, you will never be free in time. Like a child in a crib, you will be restricted to the box of your surroundings. Or like those Jews, you will not be liberated in time because you don't see the face of God in eternity. Uh, Last month, my family and I went to see some of the greatest parks in the United States of America. We went to Glacier National Park and uh, Yellowstone National Park and the Grand Tetons. And when we stood at the base of those majestic mountains and we saw those sprawling fields, And we saw those crystal clear waters rushing by us, surrounded by nothing man-made. Nothing man-made. No buildings, no skyscrapers, no houses, no buildings, no cell phone towers, no airplanes in sight. We were only surrounded by the kinds of things that man could never make. And when you're in an environment like that, it does something to you, doesn't it? You've been there probably. It does something to you when you're in a place like that, when you're away from things that are so reminding of us, of, a, of mankind. When you're in those things, those, it, it reminds you of things. It makes you think about things. It is different even than it is when you're standing, let's say, in Times Square. Surrounded by screens and buildings and instances like that. 
See, those mighty mountains that lift to the sky and the birds that float around them with no sound but the rushing waters around you demand you to be still. Times Square demands that you shout. Right? No peace. Interesting, amazing, but no stillness. No peacefulness. The Tetons, they make you silent. You feel small in a place like that. You feel silence in a place like that. And there's something that that smallness and that silence in the face of the majesty of the mountains that feels right. That feels good. It feels beautiful. I think that's why the Native Americans were tempted to worship it. And so here's what's happening in those moments. Let me help you sort of come into those moments to understand them. Your eyes and ears in those moments are being removed from imminence. And they're being lifted up to consider transcendence. And it's liberating. It's liberating because it's supposed to be. When you stand in Times Square, Apple, Samsung, and architects can explain all of that. Very easily explained. It's amazing, but it is not liberating. It's not peaceful. But you can't explain the beauty of Glacier National Park. You can't explain it. Not without a God that exists externally to it all. And those that try to explain it all without a God suppress the truth by claiming that it's all a big accident. Which takes more faith, friends. That's the best they can do. See, there's something about the majesty of nature that pulls us up out of time, quiets our souls as we consider the one that set it all into existence. One person has even said that if people sat outside and looked at the stars each night, I'll bet that they would live a lot differently. Because inside the pristine beauty of nature, our souls are lifted to something beyond nature. It demands we consider consider transcendence and it quiets us. The majesty of the Rocky Mountains shuts up the arrogance of man. And it demands us to be still. And in that stillness, that humbling that creation accomplishes in us for good, it is for good. It is meant to humble us. It is meant to remind us that there is a God and that He is greater than us. And He is not bound by this world. He is more powerful than this world. And the more that we consider that, the more that we rehearse the transcendent eternality of God, the more we can be still to enjoy the temporary. That's what Moses does here in this passage. And that's what we must do if we are going to be liberated to enjoy the freedom of Christ in time. We are going to have to regularly rehearse the eternality of God. We're going to have to regularly rehearse the reality, friends, that we're not God. We sometimes act as though we are. We do not know what's best. We are created, we are limited in our scope and understanding, and the more that God is from everlasting to everlasting in our hearts and minds, the more that we can be free to understand and be free to live inside of temporal reality. And so, friends, lift your eyes to the heavens, day in and day out. Lift up your eyes away from the man-made realities of your world, from your present reality. Look to the heavens, be still, and consider the glory of God and His eternality. But as we do that, something should happen to us in addition to that sort of aweness that comes into us. We should be quickened to note ourselves that is not eternal. And that's the second thing that we find from Moses. As we think about the eternality we, of God, we note that we are not eternal. So secondly, we rehearse the transience of men. We rehearse the eternality of God. And then secondly, we must rehearse the transience or temporariness of man. 
This is how James puts it in James chapter 4, verse 14. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Well, that's virtually the same language of Moses there in verse 10. Take a look at it. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Back in verses 5 and 6, he compares us to grass that is renewed in the morning and by evening it fades. And as we consider the eternality of God, we are struck by our own finitude. How short our lives actually are. We think that 70 or 80 years are long. But in comparison to God and the eternal nature of God, they're quite small blimp on the screen. And the older that you get, I think you'll more that you'll see. I'm finding this. I'm 43 and it just seems like time is flying by and I don't have much time left. Now, I know what you're thinking about this point of the sermon. Nathan, how on earth will this give me freedom and time to consider my temporariness, my transience? Surely you have thought about this by bringing us to this point. Well, first off, friend, it's true. And Jesus tells us that truth sets us free. It doesn't help us to ignore the reality of our deaths. You don't free a patient by withholding the news of cancer to them. You free them by being honest about it so that they can properly orient their lives. See, we live in a society that doesn't want to think about death. That thinks it will live forever. And so we have increased the span of our lives and either we think that we are owed 70 or 80 years or we just assume that we'll have it. And as a result, two things happen. One, we do not consider the eternality of God. And secondly, we don't, when we call to mind, as Wilberforce put it, that we will have to answer at the bar of God. All of us. This is exactly where Moses goes in the passage from verses 7 to 11 of Psalm 90. And verse 80 says that you have set our iniquity before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. What we learn from that, friends, is that we will all have to give an account for our brief life, including those sins that you thought would never get found out. Rehearsing this then leads us, friends, to look for the cure, doesn't it? Leads us to look for freedom. Rehearsing God's eternality awakens us from the dream and forces us to deal with our transience, which then leads us to look for forgiveness. And if you do that, and if you rehearse all of those things, and you find forgiveness in Christ, that's freedom. That's a gift. That's a gift. It's a gift because it awakens you from the dream of this world and it demands you to get right with the God so that you can know freedom. You can know forgiveness. And you can know that now, here, inside of time. And so the reason why reminding ourselves that we are a mist is freedom is because it leads us to Jesus. And Jesus is the one that sets us free. Not only then at the bar of God, but now as we consider that we will, the fact that we will have pardon at that bar. See, what Moses was looking forward to in time, we look back to in time. Moses knew that their sin had incurred God's anger and wrath. They were experiencing it as they wandered. Moses knew that he couldn't assuage God's anger by just religion. He knew, Moses did. You're saying, yes, Moses. Moses knew Moses knew, the one that lived long before Christ, he knew that there was a sacrifice that was coming that was going to have to deal and would deal with their sin once and for all. Moses knew that. You say, Nathan, how did he know that? 
Well, first off, I would tell you, at least in one instance, in Genesis 3.15, he prophesies it, where Christ is going to come and stomp on the head of the serpent. I can mention others in which he is writing about the prophecy of the coming of Christ. But secondly, we find in Hebrews chapter 11, where we get an answer to looking back at Moses to see how he was looking forward to that time when forgiveness would come in Christ. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26 says this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He, Moses, considered the reproaches of who? Of Christ was greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. You live in the freedom of time, friends, when you recognize your time on this earth is coming to an end. And having secured your forgiveness in Christ, you can then live confidently now because you've already died in Christ. And now you live forever. Jesus' eternality becomes your eternality in Christ. See, friends, people today are enslaved by the notions of death. We do everything we can to ignore it. By dressing better, by changing our hair color, by looking to technology to prolong our lives, we are a people that are terrified by death. It haunts us. And Jesus came to deliver us to set us free from the, power of the, the, from the fear of the power of death so that we can live freely now in time, not worrying about what will happen then at death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this exact thing. Here's what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's exactly what Jesus came. That's why He came to liberate us from the fear of death. And this is what Jesus does in the atonement. Jesus comes and lives the sinless life and He dies a sinner's death on the cross taking all of that anger, all of that wrath that we are reading about here in Psalm 90 for sinners who believe and trust on Him. He takes it Himself assuaging God's anger and wrath on Himself. Freely taking it, willingly taking it for the the believe. Buried, and on the third day, we see that the sacrifice was received. He resurrects. Therefore, we have confidence in the resurrection. Life eternal. The check cleared. And there is now hope for those that are in Christ to have eternal life. We no longer have to be enslaved to the fear of death. In Christ, death loses. Therefore, we who are in Him no longer live in the fear of death. We can live freely today because we are no longer bound by 70 or 80 or 90 years. Paul says this so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-53 as he considers the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. He says, we, that is the church, shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and his mortal body must put on immortality. No death. Friends, Christian funerals are different than every other kind of funeral in the world because of this reason. Those that hope in Christ God's not done with that body. 
He will raise up. Certainly the spirit of Christ or the spirit of the person goes to be with Christ. Absence of the body. Presence with the Lord. But upon Christ's soon return, they will be raised to immortality. Spirit and body will meet. Never to die again. Completely restored because of Christ. Living on an earth likewise that has been restored that will never fade or spoil as this one does now. Christ has purchased all of that. He secured all of that. And we who are in Christ can know it. Therefore, we do not have to rehearse our momentary lives in fear and in slavery. We can live them now in freedom. Not having to fear these things. Death is just a gateway to an eternal heaven. Love that image that Randy Alcorn talks about in that person that has been given the news of death. And they were told as they were mourning that one of the family members told the person to go walk outside of the room. And when they did, one after one, the other Christians that knew this woman came and joined her. And they said, this is what it's like. You're going first and we'll be behind you. But we'll be together again in Christ in heaven. This is exactly why Paul could write what he said in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. You can't touch me. The world cannot touch us that are in Christ. And so, friends, do you see now how rehearsing the eternality of God and the transience of our own lives on earth leads to freedom here and now? We do ourselves no favors by ignoring our transience, as so many do. We get free when we actually deal with it because it forces us to look to Jesus who overcame, who died for us, and it then leads us on to everlasting life. And so with confidence in His resurrection, we no longer live in slavery today which then leads us to the final requests of Moses from 12 and following. Third and final point. Use your time today as you will use it in eternity. Use your time today as you will use it in eternity. And by the way, I should mention, there's only one thing that you can do now that you won't be able to do in heaven forever. Do you know what that is? Evangelism. It's the only thing you will not be able to do because they will all know the Lord. And so give your time to that. But nevertheless, use your time today as you will use your time in eternity. So I'm going to land the plane here by rehearsing for us from Psalm 90 all the truths that Nick shared for us about three or four weeks ago from Colossians 3. So what I'm going to do, you all remember that? Colossians 3, 1 to 4, where it said, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then you'll notice right after that, go look at this this afternoon, verse five, right after he says that verse five, he says, then put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Then he goes on to say in verse 10, uh, put on the new self, which is being renewed. So just to catch you up there, Paul moves from calling us to set our minds on heaven so that we will then be useful on earth. That's what he does. And guess what? Paul didn't come up with that. That wasn't something new. He knew his Bible really well. I have to believe he saw it right here in Psalm 90. One of the most ridiculous things that you will hear in the American week. Every time I hear it, it drives me insane. Don't be so heavenly minded that you are so that you are no earthly good. Y'all, that's the worst, most. Yeah, not a good thing. Because, because, guys, it's the people that are the most heavenly minded that are always the most earthly good. They're free. They're free. They don't have to be bound by what you think of them. They can just serve you and love you. 
What's that word you see there in verse 12? You see it? What's the first word? In light of rehearsing the eternality of God and the transience of men, what's the first word he says in verse 12? So. Don't lose sight of those two little letters. So. God is from everlasting to everlasting. We don't last 70, 80 years because of our sin. So what do we do with that? So then teach us, God, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses prays to God here that we that when we consider his eternality and our transience, we will then get a heart of wisdom now. Then he begs, he pleads a prayer that the Lord would then return. How long, he says, have pity on your servants. And guess what, guys? That prayer got answered in Christ. He did return. He did return. He did have pity on us. And he did finally assuage the anger of God on the cross in Christ. And because he did, don't miss this, guys. If you are in Christ, if you love Jesus and have sworn your life to an allegiance to him, do not miss this. We who are in Christ can then confidently claim all the things that Moses prays for from verses 14 to 17. You can claim all of that as having been accomplished for you since he did come, since he did assuage the anger of God. Everything that Moses prays for here, 14 to 17, beloved, are yours in Christ today. Jesus has secured them for you. I love how Paul writes this in Philippians or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every one. So in light of that, read verse 14, beloved, with fresh eyes. This is freely yours today to enjoy in time. Verse 14 says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Why? That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So Jesus did satisfy us on the morning of his resurrection and with his steadfast love, securing for us joy and gladness. How many days? All of them. All of them. The ones now, the ones tomorrow, the ones 1,000 years from now, the ones 10,000 years from now, when me and Thomas are hanging out, 20,000 years from now, all of those days, joy and gladness forever and ever, He has secured them for us. His steadfast love brought those about for us, and they are secure. But Paul, that's what Moses prayed for, that's what we have. Jesus says to us, He promises to us in John 16, I think it is, that no one can steal your joy. As Paul will say later, whether we have a little or we have a lot, we've learned to be content because of all that we have in Christ in eternity. And so here's what that means, friends. Here's what that means. Here's what that means for those of you that have confidence in Christ. Here's what that means. You do not have to spend so much time trying to secure joy and gladness here. You're exhausting yourself trying to find it here. You're spending thousands of dollars to try to find it here. You're emotionally exhausted because you're trying to find it here. Guess what? You can stop that. Christ has secured it for you. We're going to talk about work in a second, but some of you are working 50, 60 hours a, day, a week. Yes, to pay bills, but also to try and find joy and gladness now. And I'm here to tell you it's not going to happen. I'm here to tell you it's not going to happen. It's a dream. You were made to work, but you will never made to work in such a way as to have that work liberate you. Never. 
Those that are trying to spend so much time trying to find steadfast love, which leads to joy and gladness all your days and either money or relationships or material possessions or movies or vacations or alcohol or sex or whatever. Listen, you won't ever find it there. It'll never last. You'll always want more. Keep going. Keep going. They're all transient like a mist here today, gone tomorrow. Christ has satisfied us in the morning with his steadfast love so that we can have secured for us an eternity of joy and gladness all of our days. All of our days. So work hard, have fun, but don't submit to a yoke of slavery again by finding freedom in anything else other than Jesus. Second thing we see him praying for in verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. and For as many years as we have seen evil. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Friends, not only did the Lord answer this, He went above and beyond by securing gladness for an eternity. Not only for as many days as we're experiencing affliction now, but more than that, way more than that. And so, friend, if you have not learned this now, there's a lot of 18 to 35-year-olds in the room. If you haven't learned this now, let me give you a little piece of advice from a 43-year-old man. Life's hard. It's hard. It's full of affliction. It's full of evil. It's full of suffering. If you haven't figured that out, you're going to figure it out soon enough. And you're going to want joy. You're going to want gladness as Moses is praying there in verse 15. And you're going to want, when you see evil, you're going to want at least as many days of gladness, if not more. And guys, that's what we have in heaven. That's what we have in heaven. And so as you suffer here on earth, labor here in time to rehearse the gladness that is reserved for you in eternity. These afflictions, remember, are momentary. Momentary. You guys remember that verse that I read for you in Hebrews? He chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy, remember the word, the fleeting pleasures of sin. He now knows what he prays for here. So gladness for as many days as he had been afflicted, as many days as he had seen evil. Moses chose to spend time on earth suffering with and for the people of God instead of spending his time indulging himself. Because, why? Remember what it was? He was looking to his reward in Christ. And so must we if we are going to live free now as Christians. Beloved, know that you will suffer. Know that you will experience affliction. Know that you will see evil. But as you mourn in those days, rejoice that there are far more days of gladness than there are days of want coming to you. I love that line from Amazing Grace that was added after Newton wrote it. When we've been there in heaven, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's true. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, referencing those that are dead. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. Yes, we will mourn here in time. Yes, we will suffer here in time. Yes, we will grieve in time. But no, we will endure those trials 
And we will endure them with hope. Christ has overcome the grave. He secured for us everlasting life. Therefore, we are free even in the days of evil and suffering because an eternity of gladness has been secured for us. Next thing that Moses prays for in verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Guess what? We are those children he prayed for. Why is that, Nathan? Because we who believe are the offspring of Abraham. Don't believe me? Go back and read Galatians 3 this afternoon. We are the offspring of Abraham. We that believe in Christ are the offspring of Abraham because we are, have the faith of Abraham. Same faith. Abraham, too, was looking to Jesus. Therefore, as we open up the Word of God, this Word, we can see the work of God. We can see His glorious power. Yes, we can see it in part in creation, but more discernibly, when we've been given eyes to see it here in the Word, we can see His power. We can see His glorious work as we give ourselves to it. Therefore, give your time to it, beloved. See His glorious power. See His work in the Word. We have been given eyes to see, ears to hear the glorious whispers of God. In his word. In this book, friends, we have revealed for us who God is, what he has done and what he will do on earth. But friends, if you do not take the time to read, to meditate on the word, you will miss the benefit of seeing the glorious power of God. You'll miss it. That's why we have to prioritize this gathering. This is why we preach the way that we do. Who cares what I think? I mean, seriously, who cares? I'm transient. This is what you need. So that's what we're going to give you as best we can. We're not going to keep... I cook you 25-minute microwave meals. We're going to cook you heavy, good meals from the book that you would be sustained and see the glorious power of God, that you would be sustained in difficult and hard days. And the good ones, being reminded of what you have in Christ. Take the time to see and savor the glorious power of God and what He has done for you. Because if you don't, you miss out on your freedom. You compromise your freedom by neglecting the work of God that is revealed in his scripture. I had to walk on Wednesday into a very dark hospital room. And when I did, I walked in there knowing what I was going to have to experience. I knew that I would, it was literally the darker than the valley of the shadow of death. And when I walked in there, I had a Bible in my hand. And as I was walking into that hospital, I said to myself, as I held this book right here, what would I do without this? What would I do? What hope would I have in this environment? But because I do, because I have a word from God, I can walk into that room and this dear sister that is suffering tremendously, I can give her hope in darkness. I can read words from God about His glorious power and about His glorious work and I can give it to her and in the midst of a time in which she cannot stand... Jesus can stand with her as we give her the word. What would I do if I didn't have that? What would I say? But with his word, we can stand. We can walk into those valleys of shadow of death with his word. And we can testify to the glorious work of God so that we would learn to trust him in hard and difficult days. Finally, verse 17. The thing he prays for, Moses does. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. 
Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Christian, don't miss this. The favor of the Lord is yours. It cannot be taken away. Jesus and His righteousness has been transferred to you as your faith was brought to Him. And as a result, God's pleasure in His Son is God's pleasure in you. And therefore, His favor is on you. In Christ, then, He has established the work of your hands. That's sure. He has established the work of your hands. You have been liberated from the slavery of seeking approval. Therefore, work and work hard. But don't do it to try to earn the favor of God or anyone else. In Christ, your favor, God's favor in you is secure and complete. Don't work extra hours in order to be seen. Don't testify about your accomplishments in order to try to win a a fusion of praise to you. God has already had favor on you. You don't need anybody else's. That's going to liberate you when you work. The work of your hands have been established. And so, brothers and sisters and friends, I want you to know something. I do not preach to gain your approval. I would hope that you wouldn't want me to. I don't preach week in and week out hoping that you'll like me. Hoping that I'll say things that are funny are really useful. I want to be useful to you, but I don't preach and I don't pastor to get your approval. I already have the favor of God. And that frees me when I stand up here every week. Otherwise, what would I do? I'm not enslaved to you, nor have you made me to feel as such, to be clear. But I preach, I pastor, already having the work of my hands established. It's already established. I preach and I work as a free man. What you do with sermons, as good or bad as they are, and so far as I am faithful, I leave that up to the Spirit. And that makes me to be free as I stand in front of you week after week. And I want you to feel that same freedom. God already has established the work of your hands. He has already placed favor upon you that cannot be taken away. See, I'm a happy slave to God. He set me free. He's established the work of my hands. In Christ, my work is yes and amen. And so since it is, don't miss this part, since it is, I don't work less. I work more. I work harder. Why? Because I love Him. My days were at best 70 or 80. My iniquities were before Him. My God was angry with me, and rightfully so. But by His grace and through His Son, He had adopted me. Not just me ethereally, Nathan Knight. He adopted me. He adopted you, beloved. He loved me even though I didn't love Him. He sits me down at His table and He says, eat and drink at no price to you. He is preparing a place for me that where he is, there I might be with him also. And soon enough, guys, I'm going to be there. And so I wake up each day and I wake up satisfied in the steadfast love of the Lord, no matter what may come at me that day. I can be sure that joy and gladness have been secured for me. I love telling Christians that are going through difficult times, listen, the best is in front of you. The best is in front of you. 
I'm free. You're free in Christ. Freed from the guilt of our sin. Free to love as Jesus loved us. Free to joy, enjoy the favor of God. Not try to get it from somebody else. And so what is, I, so what is, it, what is it I do with my time? What is it you are to do with your time? What do we do with our time? Well, I rehearse God's eternality. I remember my transience, which caused me to remember the gospel. And because of that, I use my time in such a way as to spend it on the kinds of things I'll do in eternity. And because of that, I can sleep okay. It's that beautiful passage in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus tells the parable of the farmer that it goes out and he sows the word and he waters it. And what does he do? He goes to sleep. And he wakes up and there's growth and he knows not how. If it weren't for that, I could never sleep. Christ has established the work of my hands. So here's what I try to do with my life. I would commend it to you. Having been in Christ, trusted in Him, I, I want to love Him. Not to try to earn His favor. I already have it. But I want to love Jesus. Whatever days, whether that's this afternoon or 30, 40 years from now, I want to love Jesus. I try to give myself to that. Secondly, I want to love my wife. I try to love her really good. I'm not always very good at it, but that's what I want to do. I want to try to love my wife. And thirdly, I'm going to try to love those two little boys. I have a seven and a ten-year-old son, and they need a dad that shows them Jesus. It's not trying to earn their favor, but trying to love them and show them what love is like. And I'm going to try to work really hard at loving my sons. And then, here's the thing. Here's... Then, this is my goal. This is what I do. This, I think about this a lot. I'm going to love Jesus. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to love my kids. And if I can have a positive, beautiful impact on just two or three people in the course of my life, just two or three, I figure that's a life well lived. That's a good life. I think I could say to that, that's time well spent. So I would commend that to you. I love that line. That everyone dies, but not everyone lives. How is it we live? We love Jesus. And we love people. We love people. We love people with the love of Christ. They'll not always love you back. But you try. You make an effort. You mess up. You repent. You move on. Love people. Love Jesus. Guys, that's the life of freedom. That's the life of freedom. In Christ you have favor. He's established the work of your hands. He has promised you eternity. He secured for you steadfast love, joy, and gladness all of your days. And friend, if you don't know Jesus, if you've not trusted Him, I pray that you would know this Gospel. That you would stop trying to work to find freedom somewhere else. And you'd find freedom in Christ and a life with Him and with His people. And if you want to talk about that, you come and talk to me. But now we should pray and thank Him for the freedom that we have in Jesus. O Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. You are from everlasting to everlasting. And due to our sin, we are separated from You, but in Christ we are brought back together with You so that we might know You and enjoy You forever, not living in the tyranny of temporality here on earth, but free to love others as You have loved us. God, help us to do that. Help us to do that freely. We love you. We thank you that you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.